I'm amazed how many people own stocks. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Podcast. My name's Paul, and each episode, me and the lads get together to talk about the stocks, stock market news, and finance in general. Quick disclaimer, you shouldn't consider anything in this podcast as personal financial advice. If you need such advice, go to a financial advisor. And please remember, when investing in any form, your capital is at risk. So sit back, relax, and let the lads fill you in with all the stock market news of the week. The sucker's going up. Welcome, everyone, to the Playing Footsie podcast. With me, we've got Steve D and Steve W. To talk about all the week in stocks, our portfolios, and, of course, earnings period session, whatever you want to call it. It's um, started off with the banks, so we'll be talking about a lot about the banks uh, in the coming future but we've got steve d steve d how's your week been and what you've been up to i'm gonna pass to steve w first oh yeah anyway uh, nice to be back um uh, i heard the show last week really enjoyed it really enjoyed the michael burry section uh, actually and i guess i'm thinking that this earnings season coming up is i suppose potentially the first chance we have to really see that hypothesis get tested uh, whether we see stuff coming out of the banks that indicates earnings are going to be lower like Burry's talking about and then we'll get kind of multiples coming down to match those sorts of earnings uh, i'm really really interested to see what's going to happen um so far my stocks have been doing okay this week i was expecting a lot worse but um i was expecting a lot worse sorry, for most of the week and then i saw on youtube that um uh, well, the man who puts Michael Burry and Warren Buffett and the rest of them in the shade, Jim Cramer, uh, said the market had bottomed on Wednesday. Uh, so, so I thought, oh, it's going to be okay, um, and that that clearly means everything's going to be all right. Uh, so, yeah, going well in stocks at the moment. Uh, elsewhere, well, I have a baby, so it's a different kind of pump and dump situation at the moment. I suspect that joke has been made by about a billion people before me, um, but. Uh, I'm tired and I can't think of a new one. Uh, is there another Steve on this show? Yes, I, I've actually done really well since Kramer called the bottom. So uh, yeah, let's keep going. That's been it's been pretty good for me. I'm I'm up. up. Okay, oh, let's go back down again now. Steve. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm cheery. So there we go. We're gonna lose twenty percent on Monday, but um, I'm up four uh, percent today, which has been a real rapid uh, climb. And realistically, I've not really seen anything that's changed. But uh, I mean, Pinterest has uh, got Elliot Management involved, who famously uh, didn't do anything for GlaxoSmithKline, and also famously <laughs> did nothing for Twitter. So um, I'm very, off, uh, very happy that they've uh, taken a, a big chunk of Pinterest. But yeah, I've had a pretty good week, very busy one for me. Uh, got d- designing the biggest roof I've ever designed at the moment. I think I'm going to get it. So <laughs> everything is golden. Paul, I have something for you because you okay. know Stephen and I like to pitch you stocks. So Uh-oh. I'm going to give you some a uh, little bit of information and some uh, statistics on a stock that uh, I've seen. And Steve's going to give you a, 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 some information on a stock that he's found. And you just have to tell us whether you're interested in them or not. Okay. Okay. So um, this is kind of following on from the success of me encouraging you to look at um, Norilsk Metal, um, the Russian nickel miner. So That went uh, well. Yep. So here's, <laughs> here's, here's some more. That's finished yet. It's going to be fine. <laughs> yeah. So... <laughs> So um, both of these stocks that we're going to recommend are uh, FTSE 250 stocks. Uh, they're both banks. Uh, the first one that I will describe to you has 8,000 employees. It has uh, positive earnings with a, a PE ratio poll of three. Uh, it was actually two earlier this week. It's, it's run up a bit while we've been uh, while I was writing. Um, dividend yield poll. I know you like this. 7.2 percent. 700 million market cap. It's about one times price to revenue. Uh, book value, very good for um, value in banks, of 0.79. Uh, it's UK mm-hmm. listed, so you're going to get all of that yield. Um, Steve, what's yours? So mine has a slightly lower PE than Steve's. It's just under three, or at least it did earlier this week. I didn't actually update it today. Uh, it's only got a dividend yield of 5% this time. Price to book is 0.6. So it looks to me like it's shaping up to be pretty good value here, I think. Um, you know, uh, you compare that with some of the US banks and it shapes up really, really nicely, right? So, yeah, I, uh, that's, I don't that's think kind of I could, I don't think I could name a FTSE 250 bank, if I'm honest. I, my my head's blank. Obviously, it's interesting. I can name three. I feel Two like, of them are these ones. <laughs> I feel like you're trying to lure me into a trap here. But, yeah, of course, it's, it's interesting. I mean, especially as the American banks are sitting at, like a book value of one at the minute, aren't they? So um, one and a half. 
Yeah, so you mentioned the American banks. Here's how I'd kind of value an American bank for what it's worth. Or a bank in general, but here's some examples from the US banks. So the way I sort of think about these and their kind of business is think about their return on equity. So what they get by lending out their uh, equity capital and so on um, versus the amount you have to pay for that equity, which is basically the return on equity over the price to book. So the one I'm looking at here, you get 25% return on equity times a 0.6 uh, price to book, I think I mentioned, is a 41.6% expected earnings return, uh, which is high. JP Morgan, when I looked earlier this week, was offering you about a 16% return over a 1.3 price to book, so about 12%. Bank of America, 12 over 1.07, so about 11%. Wells Fargo came in at about 12%. Citigroup, uh, much to be mm -hmm. said about that, but around 18%. It's, none of them are even half the kind of value you get in here, I think. I do right. So, do you, want me to, do, you want, do you want to hear a little bit more about them, Paul? Go for it. Do you, you okay. tell me what... This, this is a surprise to me. So, these, uh, these two banks, the tickers are BGEO and TBC. Um, so, these guys are both banks in Georgia. And, uh, and well, and Uzbekistan at the moment. So, they are, uh, well, they're incredibly close to the Ukraine war and uh, widely reported as being potentially the next targets. Um so strictly putting on your temp uh, your Templeton hat here, Paul. Strictly speaking, is this <laughs> an opportunity to be greedy when others are being fearful? Oh, it's scary, isn't it? It's it's scary after I've been burned once already. Although you know, saying that, I I do even with Russia have the belief that eventually this will all even out. I think obviously Russia's economies should be damaged. Uh, in fact, the, the whole world's economy is going to be damaged after a after a long period, but. Yeah, I, I I watched Howard Marks today, uh, a two-hour interview with ha Howard Marks, um, talking about how he doesn't think particularly that we're in a particularly overvalued stock market right now. Uh, he uh, always thinks that the world's going to do better afterwards. And um, uh, and he, he talks a lot about emotion. It was really interesting uh, the way he talks about emotion and risk. And he basically said, you've got to... Um, try and do the thing that everyone uh, your your inner being is telling you not to, and it's very just very interesting. I did, however, just go to I went to Oak Tree Capitals 13F afterwards and looked at it and went, oh my god, I wouldn't go anywhere near any of these. <laughs> I think they were all like Chevron and stuff like that, and I was thinking, oh, th this one isn't for me. Um, but it, it's a different kind of investing. It's a different way of thinking. I think he has. Um, Obviously, you're going to be open to anything. You've got to be open to any any bank that's got a lot of cash on hand, a lot of reserve, anything like that. You you want to be interested in, um, uh, and and ultimately, ultimately, the rule is don't don't think macro. So maybe uh, I you know it's always an option, isn't it? It's key. You only banks at the moment, Paul. I, I was going to say it's key. It's key to note that. Um, you know, Georgia is a country that's soft and overlooked, but it's actually growing its GDP at nearly 15% as well. So, mm. um, you know, there's impending uh, impending war or at least threat of war, um, serious threat of war maybe. But, um, you know, Georgia's economy is doing pretty well. If if you fancy some, I mean, I think it's hellacious level of risk, um, <laughs> but if you fancy some risk, you're going to cut to pretty decent dividend there at a very very cheap bank uh seems to be doing pretty well um just from the you know the glance over the statistics um what's georgia yeah. known for what's what's it's what's it sort of <laughs> Alan, i think that's its biggest export <laughs> yeah like just, uh, oh yeah, um, georgie king Platzi. he was georgian wasn't he <laughs> oh yeah yeah he was georgian yeah, I the name I mean, like that. I think yeah. there you go. That's what George is doing us for. And let us know in the comments <laughs> if you know anything else. <laughs> this isn't making the edit, is it? <laughs> um, all right then. Um, let's let's get on to let's get on to banks and start first and foremost. It's earnings season. Banks have started. Uh, did, you, did you have any more to say? Just uh, no, I didn't think you did. Um, <laughs> well, about Georgia, yeah. Just a few um, other points. No, I'm kidding. Uh, so it's, it's earnings season now. Um, banks come first. Give us. Just off the top of your head, why you think this is so important to read the banks first and and uh, what they might tell us about the economy? So banks are uh, central to what uh, is going on in the economy in the sense of they provide financing for people who want to do stuff at a business level and at a consumer level uh, to an extent. So they will tell you things like how much is going on in consumer 
uh, accounts, how much lending's been going on, how much kind of investment bank activity's been going on, so corporate uh, business and so on. And uh, sort of between them, any particular one of them might not give you a particularly good picture and any one of them might be under pressure at any given time. But between them, I generally like to look at these because if they're telling you there's a lot going on, even if their own earnings in particular aren't very good because they've mismanaged something or something like that, but if they're telling you there's a lot going on, that's generally a decent economic sign, at least as I, I think about yeah, it. Yeah, again, uh, it's the bellwether for the economy, isn't it? That's the idea behind the banks. They give you a rough idea. Um, how they're performing is generally reflective of how the economy at large is is uh, is performing. Now, it's very difficult um, to drill down... Um, you know what sides of the businesses are causing drag on their um, performance, but uh, as a general rule, it's always good to see how the bank. It's usually why they go first because it kind of sets the tone for the earnings uh, earnings to come. And uh, yeah, we've we've been picking through them for you, um, so you know, so you don't have to. And uh, <laughs> I mean, Steve, do you want to go quickly over uh, just a couple of things we we may mention stress test and loss reserve? Do you want to just quickly go over what they are? Yeah, sure. Just a couple of quick things then for some context before we kind of pile into the details of these things. Uh, we're talking about the U.S. banks and kind of the biggest of the U.S. banks, mainly not the regional ones. So a couple of things that uh, I think at least are important for making sense of uh, what's going on here. A month ago, the Fed did a thing called a stress test. So the way that banks work at the moment since the kind of financial crisis where they were all way undercapitalized for their loans and had massive losses and needed bailing out, the Federal Reserve will sporadically, it might be quarterly, I'm not sure about that, uh, basically run a bunch of economic simulations for what might happen if things go really, really wrong in the US economy. And we'll look at what will happen to those banks, given their current cash levels, the kind of debts that might go bad that they have, and so on and so forth. And they will say to JP Morgan, Bank of America, so on and so forth, you need to put this much cash in reserve to deal with the situations that we think might, in a, in a particularly bad situation, come about. And there's nothing that the banks can do about this, basically. So they will need to set enough aside to um, make sure they're okay in what the Fed considers a stress test uh, or a stressful situation. And the recent stress test went fine for all the banks, but they have all been asked to increase what's called their stress capital buffers, which is roughly speaking their loan reserves. Um, and what, you hear, what you'll hear a lot coming through in these is loan reserve amounts are up. And loan reserve amounts up means that banks are having to get more money and keep it to fend off potential disasters, basically. The way I sort of think about it is, I have an emergency fund for if something goes really wrong in my own life. And I don't like having an emergency fund because I'd rather have that money invested in doing stuff. But it's really important that I do have an emergency fund. And maybe at different times in my life, I need more and less of an emergency fund, depending on what kind of emergency I might get. Right. So if I own a house, I need to be worried about the roof falling in. If I rent a house, it's probably someone else's problem to fix the roof if it falls in. So different amounts of emergency fund needed for different times. Um, and there's a couple of ways that you can look at banks having to put aside more uh, money. Basically, one is to say, look, it doesn't matter. It doesn't go anywhere. Uh, the other is saying it's bad because it's effectively like a manufacturing company having a machine it can't use. Uh, effectively, they have to take that cash, not lend it out, not generate interest on it, not have it make money for them. And it just sits there and unfortunately at the moment gets inflated downwards. And it's worth mentioning that the reason why these uh, reserves have, came, have come in is simply because that emergency fund wasn't there in 2008 and a lot of the banks that we no longer hear about are mm -hmm. no longer there. And that's why these are in. This is a government-enforced thing. Some companies like to put more reserves in, and I'm sure we'll talk about that as well. Some companies are much more frugal than others, some of the big banks, um, and I'm sure we'll get to that in a second. But um, who do you want to go with first? Who, who do you think? Because I thought it was very mixed. Uh, you might share the same thing, but uh, who do you want to go first? It, well, let's start with the uh, JP Morgan. I think they're the biggest buy market cap in the US, so that would be a, a good place to start. They reported on Thursday. I think was it pre-market, Steve, or was it after market? Pre, pre, pre-market. I think okay, it's pre. So they uh, they reported revenue of thirty one point six three billion. Uh, that was. Uh, a miss um, on 31.95 billion earnings came in at 276 and uh, it, that was a miss as well um, it sh they, they were looking for 288 that's actually uh, minus 28 percent year over year uh, 428 million in reserves added uh, versus 3 billion uh, what they released last year uh, they've actually suspended the buybacks as well so uh, the market didn't like this very much um, mm. shares were down um, 
pretty sharpish. Um, they've had a little recovery today uh, that when last time I looked, but um, JP Morgan looks like decent value. Uh, one of the things I picked out the analyst call, which was quite interesting, was uh, Mike Mayer. Uh, he was decided that he was going to take Jeremy Diamond to town. Uh, he said, and I quote, Hi, good morning. Could you help me reconcile your words with your actions after Investor Day, Jamie? We said a hurricane is on the horizon, but today you're holding firm with your 77 billion expense guide for 2022. I mean, it's like you're acting like there are sunny skies ahead. You're out buying kayak, surfboards, wave runners just before the storm. So is it tough times or not? So Jamie Diamond, uh, obviously uh, being ever the artful dodger, uh, responded <laughs> and said, I quote, consumers are in good shape. Jobs are plentiful. Consumers spending 10% year on year. Almost 30% more than pre-COVID. Businesses, you talk to them, they are in good shape. They are doing fine. We've never seen business credit be better ever like this in our lifetimes. And that's the current environment. Now, this sounds like the old meme, you know, when um, when uh, Britain ever has a little bit of wind and somebody just posts the deck chair on the floor. Maybe hmm. that is the level of hurricane that Jamie Dam is talking about. But their streets are part. Um, you guys have any thoughts on that? Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head with this one for me. Um, and it's the reason why I am buying. I don't know what the book value is right now. Uh, I think it's still over one. I think uh, Wells Fargo is the only one that's under one at the minute. But um, I, I, the reason why it's gone up today uh, is simply because he came out and he said, in fact, going through a storm gives us opportunities too. So I always remind myself, that the economy will be a lot bigger in 10 years. And that's an interview that he's come out with today, actually. So, it, like you say, there's a big hurricane coming. And what I was reading, and I was big on the jobs report, I, I read all this as well, and I thought I, I thought they were, they were doing very well. And I also thought that they put, were putting more reserves away than they should. I thought, and stopping the buybacks, that was the problem, right? The buybacks was the big problem that sent the price down. Uh, it's a bit of a bit of a pain, but I think this is good. I I had the opposite idea to the market here, where I thought actually these results are suggesting that it's okay. It's that this isn't like great financial crash 2.0. The banks are in brilliant shape. I, I think we're going through a Dip, and I hate it. I hate myself at the moment, but I actually have the opinion that this isn't going to be a massive crash, and I don't think there's more than twenty percent drop from here. And that's that's a prediction, but it's it's actually filled me with a bit of optimism, and that's what's been important for me. Is as I felt very optimistic after JP Morgan. I'm still cautious with the rest of the earnings coming out because that's going to be hell. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm, it's been an odd, been an odd couple of days. Yeah, it has. I saw that JP Morgan's share price was now about where it was in the 2020 COVID dip uh, thing, where I think I actually bought it back then and subsequently let it go a little bit, which uh, I suppose if you're interested in kind of playing the ups and downs of the stock market has worked out okay, right? Because it's now lower than it was where I sold it. But um, a friend of the show, the Boss Hog, put his finger on something that I kind of have been looking at over the last few quarters here. So... JP Morgan's earnings, and this is a theme across all the major banks, by the way, but just pointing out, these ones are down 28% year over year. And the main reason for that is they've had to put aside 428 million in reserves, or have to, or chosen to, whatever it is. Jamie Dimon, by the way, is livid about that stress test, from what I understand of it. He said a lot of things that were not at all complimentary mm. about the way it's done, and he thinks it's uh, fairly capricious and not transparent, and so on and so forth. But um, comparing this to the same quarter last year when they had a three billion release, uh, which gave them a lot more mm. kind of earnings power. Um, I mean, Boswell wanted to point out, at least as I understood his point, that the market does tend to overreact to these things or might well have a tendency to overreact to these things. Uh, bank shares went mad last year because they were all releasing um, uh, loan reserves. Basically, it looked like the kind of stuff they put aside the during the, the real problems of COVID stuff when everything looked like yeah, yeah, the world was ending. Um, that suddenly came back into to play and everyone thought, oh, great, banks are all brilliant. Now buy them and buy them and buy them and buy them. And now they have to put them aside again. It's sell them and sell them and sell them. It does make a difference to the fundamentals. That's not money you can loan out. And actually with interest rates higher, um, the interest rate you might get at, I don't know, 4% on 428 is a lot mm. more than the interest you would get on 2% at 428 or something like that. So I, I take the point that there is something to react to uh, with this. 
but I, I wonder whether they sometimes overreact to these things, especially with um, interest rates higher. That should be helping uh, banks. And the JP reason Morgan it came especially. in underestimates, the main reason was investment banking. So there's less fees going into these banks. Uh, BlackRock was a really big one that, that didn't do very well straight on, on the earnings on Thursday as well. Uh, seeing less than, say, normal, but we're talking about 2020 and 2021 here with this. They're seeing a, rec a receding in uh, investment transactions, i.e. fees. So all of those fees that people pay to Vanguard and Hargreaves Lansdowne and, and uh, well, to be fair, Trading212 as well, those are not as they're, – they're not there anymore. So this is something that I've always worried about as well, particularly with some of the brokers we use. And the big boom in brokers, we're starting to see it crypto with Celsius and BlockFi completely collapsing. They're collapsing because people don't want to invest at the moment. And I don't like that mood uh, that's out there. Uh, and we're obviously starting to see that in these banks and in BlackRock as well. Although they class Black, BlackRock as a bank these days. Still, lots of reserves. I thought the reserves were really good with, with JP Morgan. I like Jamie Dimon being cautious. But I like the optimistic tone at the same time. And I, I, I like that it's just a, a very cautious way of moving. I don't like that the market doesn't think it's very good, which is which was a problem. That was the only thing. <laughs> I don't really have a problem with banks putting reserves away either, to be honest. I think that's I would much sooner that than have some massive financial crisis. I don't really see uh, I don't really see Jamie, Jamie Diamond's argument on this, but he's been a bit flip, flip floppy recently. Um, I think maybe he likes attacking, doesn't he? Well, he, likes, maybe, he likes just jabbing. Maybe you like the stress tests tomorrow mm. when we ask him a question about it, Sam. Anyway, <laughs> shall we move on? Who was next, Steve? Yeah. Uh, I've written down a few here, but I've hit me on the theme that Paul just mentioned. Let's go in sort of chronological order, then sticking to Thursday. Morgan Stanley, which is basically uh, an investment bank, um, did horrible. Uh, and the reason the stock isn't down very much is because it's basically an investment bank, so everyone thought it was going to do horrible. Uh, we're at, it's the end of kind of SPAC season for another cycle or so, uh, and that's where you kind of get a lot of your investment banking money from. Uh, they break down their revenue into international securities, wealth management, and asset management. They managed to miss on both revenues and earnings. Uh, earnings are down by about 30% mm. or so. Uh, stock's down a little bit. Bit. This isn't one we talk about very much because it doesn't have the same kind of structure as some of the other banks. But if you're looking for a bank, I guess, where you want to bet on um, higher investment banking fees, Goldman Sachs hasn't Monday. reported yet, yep. Steve, I think Monday. Yep. Um, Morgan Stanley is an interesting thing where I guess when interest rates are lower and stock markets are a bit more volatile. Uh, but at the moment, less so on that sort of thing, I guess. Morgan is a big bank, isn't it? I didn't think it was as big as this. Um, VC, VC. It's all about the yeah, VC. Yeah, it's all about VC. And I guess, um, you know, you've seen the complete lack of IPOs this year. Um, in compar Well, in comparison to, we, we got a, um, a decade's worth last year. Um, so I guess that's why, um, you know, that that's why Morgan Stanley are looking to fund IPOs. And uh, and uh, there's just not been any. So, yeah, you could you could see that. I mean, um, we'll, we'll jump on. Um, we'll jump on to Wells Fargo. Um, I'll leave Citigroup for you, Steve, because I know you're a huge fan. Um, <laughs> but Wells Fargo reported on Friday. Again, another miss on revenue. Uh, 17, well, just over $17 billion. They're expecting 17 and a half. Uh, earnings was actually a beat. 82 cents versus 80. Um, it's a bit of a dip year over year. But I think they had a big reserve re release as well, Wells Fargo, off the top of my head. So... Um, yeah, impairment on some equities from its venture capital arm accounts for the miss. Um, uh, loan reserve of 580 million versus release. So yeah, and the stock was up a bit. Um, the market didn't seem to to mind this one too much. Wells Fargo, I mean, they're, they're probably most famous for faking things, so they might be a bank, they might not be. Steve, <laughs> how did Citigroup do? So, uh, okay, okay, okay. Um, with Wells Fargo and City, the two reporting on Friday, you've basically got the two that are in the penalty box one way or another. Citigroup by being an organisational mess, um, for what it's worth, and Wells Fargo by having massive fraud uh, going on one way or another. Both of these are arguably historic. Both have new-ish CEOs, certainly new since the, the real depths of their own problems, and they're in the business of turning themselves around. And the story of Wells Fargo has been the same for, well, since I've been investing, so about 10 minutes or so. 
but uh, it's been a case of, look, it's under an asset cap because it hasn't complied with regulations very well. Once it gets out from under that asset cap, it's got a lot of money uh, for its kind of market cap. Trouble is, not quite clear when it's going to get out, and it doesn't actually look mm. like it's going to be anytime soon. It looks like one of these kind of uh, robo-taxis, which is always going to be next year. But uh, the thought there seems to be roughly that's the same story Wells Fargo always has been. Uh, and yeah, they've had another whack on some uh, VC mm -hmm. equities lately. So yet more <laughs> impairments at Wells Fargo. Uh, Citigroup is also a mess, but it's one of my biggest kind of holdings. I mean, it is now anyway. Uh, I bought some okay. more of it earlier this week. Yeah, well done me. Uh, and the stock is up very nicely. It's up about 10% after earnings. And anyone who's thinking of paying attention to what I say because of that really ought not to. I had no idea whether this number was going to be bigger, smaller or anywhere compared to uh, estimates and so on. The plan for Citigroup has nothing to do with any kind of quarterly earnings, but it's very nice and gratifying anyway. So, um, unlike all the other banks, it beat on both revenue and earnings. Uh, revenue is about 19.64 billion versus 18.2 expected. Earnings $2.19 a share versus 1.68, which is uh, also a beat. It's down by about 27% year over year, a mere 27% decline. Um, it's done well because of stronger what's called net interest income, which is basically the difference between the rate you get by lending money out and the rate you get by paying out uh, interest on deposits and so on. They have also suspended their buybacks, which is enormously disappointing to me. Uh, not because I think it's um, an unwise decision. I don't really have a view. And I, like you guys with JP Morgan, err on the side of caution, especially with an organization like Citigroup, which is currently restructuring itself. So I'm okay with it from that perspective, but the things that are priced to book, it's up about 10% today, which must take its price to book mm. to about a half mm. uh, or something like that. And buybacks at those levels really do kind of kick the value along a little bit. Um, it's in the process of selling, I think, about 13 international franchises, including one in Russia, which uh, I'm expecting some <laughs> impairments on that. But I think a lot of banks have taken a fair bit of impairment stuff. Uh, and, and the general thesis for this is watching that longer term sort of uh, turnaround. By the way, following that massive jump in the share price, I am about flat on my position. Yeah, so worth. what's the reason reasoning for s specifically Citibank over the rest of them? Is it that brand or do you, are you, is it value? He's, he's, is it simply no. value? Uh, he's hoping that one day they accidentally dividend him seven billion instead of seven cents. <laughs> Someone pressed the wrong, wrong button again. <laughs> <laughs> has been known um it has yeah. been known under this management actually the usual excuse is that that was before jane fraser but apparently some trader caused a flash crash there that said um trading revenue has dug city out of trouble yeah. better than it's dug uh, yeah. jp morgan and yeah, some of the others that, yeah. out of uh, trouble in this particular uh, uh quarter so with banks you kind of have the money you make by your lending in and out um stuff and you have the money you make by basically trading and that comes down to the kind of skill of your traders cities are not all uh, I want to say cities are not always the best. Clearly, they're not always the best. They sometimes press the wrong button. Um, but they're uh, often thought of as kind of second class to JP Morgan or Goldman. Uh, this is a good quarter for I them. Actually, They've done pretty well. And I'm looking forward to seeing that turn around. I actually read that City, yeah. Citigroup's trading volume was up, as in not that they were better trading, more that, more that they were actually still getting the fees. They were still getting clients in and... and sending money whether whether that's because they've they've picked the right they've, they've gone behind oil companies or something and and more money's flooded in towards them I, I i don't know but yeah i did read that actually their trading their uh fee volume was up quite high and that that surprised me because I, I couldn't put my finger on why that would be the one and all the others were just doing terribly uh, other than obviously uh morgan stanley which is just in a quagmire of all sorts. I think they're the centre of this whole Twitter scandal as well. I think uh, Morgan Stanley are the are one of the uh, deal writers for for that, and that's all going to collapse now. Um, so, with this all in mind, w where do we think earnings season is going to go based on the mixed uh, information that we've got out? On I'm, I'm forcing you to make a a prediction here. Here's what I've got my eye on here. I've got my eye on demand in cyclical stuff. So I think this might come in a little bit weak. And in particular, I'm thinking things that are more strongly cyclical than others. So I don't just mean anything that comes that comes labelled as consumer cyclical. So something like Starbucks, which is basically a thing that people buy every day, kind of regardless of what the weather is. I don't really mean that so much. 
I'm looking more at stuff like house builders, like cruise lines to an extent, um, and stuff like, uh, so I own Polaris um, as one of my stocks, which is a, a fairly cyclical, uh, people don't buy them every day uh, kind of thing. I'm looking at seeing where demand is going in these things, and I worry it's going to come mm. in a little bit light. So that's where I'm looking for possible kind of mm. overreactions uh, to stuff. I'm expecting to see some drops coming in, and I'll see if anything really kind of catches my eye. I'm still sort of mildly optimistic about earnings at the moment. I don't think, uh, oh crap, <laughs> I've done it again, haven't I? I'm very cheery about earnings. Google down 95% today. Um, There's still time. There's still, there's still 20 minutes. <laughs> Not Sunday, close. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I think... I, I, I still think... I, I'd be interested... Of the, all the ones I'm watching, I, I'm very excited to see uh, what Netflix comes up with. I, I was going to say Netflix. I you think their content, be excited. Yeah, their content slate has been pretty good uh, over this over this last little mm. period. Um, so I would be so interested Disney, to see... Though. Well, I, I'm... Even the same, I'm a Disney shareholder, so yeah. uh, I would be be remiss of me to want Disney to perform. But, but I think Netflix's content has been pretty good. Uh, I would be intrigued to see um, whether this two and a half billion uh, subscriber loss that we were about to experience was a little bit of sandbagging because Netflix oh, sandbag on the way up. Uh, Whoa, uh, two and a half! Billion. How many was that? It's predicted. It's predicted two and a half million loss. Is it million loss. or billion? Million loss. Oh, million um, loss. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah, not a million. Sorry, it wasn't a million. Yeah, I was going to say <laughs> that's that's it was not billion. <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah, they're expecting a two and a half million subscriber loss. But there's sandbag guidance all the time going up mm. and sandbagging on the way down. I wonder, just wonder what, what, how the share will react. I've been averaging uh, down quite a lot on Netflix. I think a uh, decent share jump, and I could be, uh, I could be back in the green. <laughs> I think you've got a really good point. I was very pessimistic about Netflix, but obviously because I own all the others except for Comcast and Peacock, uh, a good Netflix bounce back here would be very good for some of my mm. other stocks. And and obviously, because that's the bellwether of it. So yeah, I like your theory, uh, just just because it fits my own narrative, really. But, um, Before it, we yes, move on to the, uh, the two stocks that Steve and I have for July, Paul, I've got another mm. bank for you. Uh, I okay. had a look through Bonzo's annual report, uh, the best British bank. Mm-hmm. And they um, they have announced some pretty uh, pretty interesting um, jump in revenue. Is uh, as near as damn it, hundred uh, percent jump in revenue from eighty point six million to one hundred fifty four point three million uh, losses actually uh, reduced over that period. So if you've seen a company that's doing one hundred percent jump in uh, revenue and uh, losses are actually decreasing, what's um, he laughing at? That's all pretty good, Steve knows, because me and Steve are shareholders. We're going to pump pump the fuck out of Monza. Um, <laughs> but no, yeah. You called it Best British Bank. Best British Bank, according to this show, where two-thirds of us own shares well, in the company. They actually won the Best British Bank at the, at the British Banking Awards. Uh, the, oh, did, did they? Yeah, they gave it to Chase. In the Playing Footsie Awards. <laughs> Playing Footsie nominated Best we British it, Bank. We gave it to Chase. That's how impartial we are. <laughs> yeah, we did, yeah. Oh, did we? Um, oh, what a... It's there for you to have a look at. 256 pages. About 254 of them are absolute gobbledygook. Um, but yeah, when you get through it, um, it's a, it's looking like a pretty interesting business, which is finally turned in the corner. Um, you know, head of head of Visa in uh, now as a CEO is obviously he's going to have more of a focus on generating a profit. And uh, I think Monzo's seems like it's pretty much getting there. Steve, you think there's an IPO around the corner? I'd be oh, surprised if there's an IPO that. around the corner. They've resisted the temptation to... I don't know. I feel like they've resisted the temptation to IPO when the time yeah. was kind of more attractive to IPO. I'm not sure I'd like to see them do it now. I mean, I would like to see it eventually, but um, I don't know... You'll know when there's an IPO Steve and I will come on with really thick gold chains. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. you would have sold on day gold one. Two. You would have, you would se- You were going to sell on day one, you two are. But uh, it's like Etoro. Etoro cancelled its SPAC. Yes, um, that. uh, that's all uh, That's quite big news. But it, it, that's just a, it's just a show of the times. And I think I think maybe if you didn't get in, what even then, if you didn't get right in at the start of the SPAC boom, you, you're probably doing pretty crap now anyway. Uh, uh, even if you did get in on the SPAC boom, um, but yeah, it's um, it's very interesting that a couple of the these VC companies or pri- private companies right now. 
um, have have dodged a bit of bit of a bullet, and Monzo is one of them. And I think that was a really good move. I don't think it needs to go public yet. Um, but yeah, um, did you get one of your colours? Have you been doing your reference and and getting one of your free coloured cards? Because I thought that was a terrible marketing ploy. Yeah. No, I I have the metal card, so I'm not particularly bothered Ooh. about it. Uh, because oh, you're investors, card. yeah. You get your metal card. So. <laughs> no, no, I have to pay for it. Oh, do you? Yeah, no, oh, wow. I paid for it. I've had travel insurance all the way through COVID, uh, which has been very useful to me. <laughs> what what I don't what what this is what what I I wonder what how the marketing team missed it, but the color of their cards that um their standard color is actually called hot coral and mm. i was a bit like uh, mm-hmm. is, you really called it hot carl that, <laughs> that's the that's the pantone reference for anybody who likes printing oh is it yeah oh, that, right. is the, that, that, that is the that is the pantone color for it hot coral i, I believe i have i have heard mm. i have heard that name before i just thought why uh, yeah it's a marketing nightmare for me just because i'm a childish anyway uh stocks for july then Okay, so my stock for July is more of a watch list one than a buying one, because to be honest, if I gave you the stock that I was buying in July more than any of the others, it's probably basically going to be Disney. And we're likely to talk about Disney fairly soon. They report their earnings on August 10th. I imagine we'll probably talk about them around that point because they're the kind of stock we like talking about a lot. I think all three of us own them. Um, but rather than sort of talk about Disney now and then talk about it again, I thought I'd tell you about a stock that I think is interesting and we haven't talked about much or indeed possibly at all uh, on this show. Stock I'm looking at at the moment is a company called Halma. Uh, they're listed on the UK Stock Exchange in the FTSE and they're in the FTSE 100. So there's a FTSE 100 uh, stock. Not many of those going around that we like very much, but I do like this one very much. I think Paul will as well when he gets around to looking at this, if he gets around to looking at it. The, it has a dividend that's growing. Uh, and it's been growing for the last 42 years. It's uh, been growing by about 5%. It's reached a mighty 0.82 of a percent at the moment. So probably um, it, it's unlikely to outpace inflation just on the dividend, but it's growing fairly well. And if inflation comes down, that growth might outpace inflation, I suppose. Anyway, on to the stuff that the rest of us care about. Uh, so what is this company? And to be honest, one of the reasons I haven't talked about this sooner on the show is because I haven't really been able to work out the answer in a fashion that I was happy repeating because I could read out a bunch of words without really knowing what they mean, but I'm not going to do that. And so far when I've looked at Halmer, it's always been, okay, that's a bunch of words. I know what they mean individually, and I'm struggling to get a feel for what they mean when they're put together. But I think I've roughly got it, basically. So Halmer is a conglomerate. It's a bunch of small businesses. There isn't really a kind of central organizing thing. You might kind of loosely compare this to Berkshire Hathaway, which I'll do at a time. But here's one important difference to get us going. Berkshire Hathaway, you can think of what their kind of big pillars are. Uh, they have the railroad, they have the energy staff, they have the insurance staff, they have a pretty big Apple holding and so on. And those are the four kind of clear big businesses that um, that power them along, basically. Halmer is not quite like that. It's made up of about 45 different uh, businesses and none of them is that big as compared to the whole thing. But they divide themselves up into basically three segments. Each of these has kind of clusters of businesses in them. There's uh, safety, there's environment and analysis, and there's medical. So they consider themselves to be a life-saving tech uh, company or a life-saving tech conglomerate, I suppose. So just a little bit on what each of those segments is about, because they're kind of nice names that don't really tell you an awful lot. The first segment was safety, which is about 42% of revenues. That's growing at 16% roughly, which is kind of nice. And that deals with stuff like fire detection and extinguishing, pressure management in industrial pipes. Uh, and sensing solutions for uh, people moving around in industrial settings, so uh, labs and factories and those kind of things. Um, and what they basically do is acquire small businesses. Uh, they've recently acquired one called Ramtech, which is a decent example of the kind of company that they have. Ramtech is a, a wireless fire detection system outfit. They're very, very small. Apparently, wired fire systems can be slow and hard to install and difficult to fit if the building isn't the way you thought it was. Uh, and there's a real drive towards wireless uh fire detection sort of stuff uh, for buildings. So Ramtech is a company that they've kind of plugged in as their latest acquisition there. Their environment segment is 29% of revenues. That's growing at about 24%, which is a decent clip, really, for revenues, to be honest. Uh, they deal in things like spectral imaging systems, water analysis and treatment, and gas detection. So loads of environmental techie things to do with making water cleaner, uh, getting clear on what's um, polluting various things, and so on and so forth. 
their most recent acquisition there is Minicam Group, which is a company that uh, works on relining wastewater pipes. Basically, what that means is if you think about the, the sewage system in London, that basically goes back to Victorian times, I think. And relining pipes as they wear out is hard work. Usually that would involve digging them out of the ground. Uh, Minicam has an operation where they can basically push stuff down the pipes and have it reseal them from the inside, uh, which is more efficient than trying to dig through the ground and pull the pipes back out and reseal them like that. So another nice innovative uh, thing. Um, and the third segment is the medical segment. That's another 29% of group revenues. If you're keeping track, that is all of it. And this is growing at about 33%, which is a pretty good clip. So they're interested in things like in vitro diagnostics, which is roughly speaking pregnancy monitoring. Uh, and they're also interested in kind of other monitoring systems and components for monitoring systems. So Suntech is their most recent company there. What they make is a kind of motion tolerant blood pressure monitoring thing. So you can attach a blood pressure monitor to someone and have them go about their day rather than sitting in a hospital or a doctor's office waiting while their blood pressure gets monitored. That outfit's looking to kind of expand its reach beyond its current range and plugging it into Helmer's big conglomerate with lots of overarching stuff and uh, uh, reach and range is helpful to them. So, okay, that's roughly what it does. You've got a bunch of small businesses that all work together in this kind of way. How do we think about this as investors, I guess? Well, having that many businesses that are all small means that we are pretty hugely diversified, right? So if any one of these goes wrong, it's not going to knock a big lump out of anything. Uh, 45 businesses in total. I've written down that reduces risk. I guess it reduces the risk of any single uh, business. And they have had some businesses go wrong, but it doesn't break the whole system if something, uh, one of their smaller businesses kind of goes and gets disrupted or displaced. Their kind of moat comes from, and uh, you hear this a lot from me, but focusing on niche markets and things like that. So small markets makes them hard to disrupt, disincentivizes anyone from spending much money to come and break them up because they have a sticky kind of dominant position in lots of things like wireless monitoring and so on. It would cost a lot to replace them and you wouldn't get a lot back once you did. Uh, and by picking up loads and loads of these that focus on these kind of things, they tend to try and make themselves a fairly robust kind of business. The downside to this is that niche markets are niche. Uh, there isn't huge amounts of room for growth in any of these kind of markets. So you need to keep adding businesses and you need to keep looking for kind of inorganic uh, growth. So organic growth is what you get by just basically selling either more of the same stuff or selling it at a higher price. Inorganic growth is what you get by adding something else to your business one way or another, usually by acquiring something. Um, and growth by acquisition is always risky, right? I mean, you've heard us talking about Teladoc recently. If you pay the wrong price for something, it can go very wrong and it can hammer your business. So that's a risk with Halmer because that's how they plan on growing, at least in a decent amount. They talk about kind of uh, organic growth from niche markets, and there is some, that's definitely true. But the main thing that's going to push them along is by adding businesses. And they've been acquisitive in the last couple of years in quite a busy way, which is kind of nice to see with companies selling cheap. So there's risk there. And there's also a changing guard at the top. Um, Andrew Williams has been their CEO, done a really good job. He's been replaced by their chief financial officer. Uh, does he have the same skills? I couldn't tell you. I mean, he's from inside the business. He understands it very well. There's a culture there that there's that he will understand and so on. But... I guess there's a bit of a question mark over exactly how well they'll acquire in the future. If your business depends on you acquiring well, a change in the guard always brings a kind of possibility of uh, things going less well than they have done. Could also go better, of course. Uh, growth by acquisition and talking about comparing them to Berkshire, size kind of can become an issue here. So Berkshire, one of the issues is that once they've done their acquiring, they now struggle to find things that are big enough to move the needle. Uh, because... Buffett's always saying there's no point in looking for a few hundred million dollars of um, acquisition here. It won't make a meaningful difference. That's not quite there for Halmer yet. They have an 8 billion market cap. There's plenty of things you can buy that will make a, a difference, but not a huge difference to your 8 billion market cap. Your kind of universe is wider. There's plenty more things they can find. And they do continue to find things that are, are pretty good to kind of buy. Again, I'm kind of comparing them to Berkshire a little bit. They have a nice decentralized structure, right? So there's no one at headquarters whose job is to oversee the safety stuff and the healthcare stuff and the environment stuff because it's hard to see anyone's circle of competence being that big. But what they do do that I think Berkshire don't actually, which is slightly surprising to me, is get their individual CEOs to talk to each other and work together and collaborate quite a lot. 
Uh, Berkshire don't do this. So Dairy Queen quite famously didn't accept American Express uh, for quite some time. And Dairy Queen being a wholly owned Berkshire subsidiary, American Express being a big investment they have. And you would think it made quite a lot of sense to for someone to just lean on Dairy Queen and say, look, uh, we could do with stuff going through American Express, maybe only except American Express, make people use these damn cards if they want to eat in Dairy Queen. But Central Office always resisted the kind of temptation to do that and said, yeah, we're we're not going to kind of make them do these things. Our individual CEOs run their own businesses. And that's true at Halmer as well. But it is also kind of the case that they're supposed to work together. There's a reason they're in these kind of segments where they're in similar things like gas detection and smoke detection and uh, process safety and that kind of thing, because the thought is they can plug in and work well uh, together. So this is a business I like a lot. Stock's done really, really well over the last few years. Uh, Returns on invested capital are great. Balance sheet looks pretty good. Um, It's got everything I like as a business. Basically, uh, I think it's got a fairly good moat too. And it's in an area that doesn't get a huge amount of press from what I can see of it. And I like things that are kind of, I want to say under the radar, but under the radar is a kind of slightly cliche term. Uh, but I like things that not everyone's talking about and you get huge amounts of attention on the stock. Unfortunately for me, here's the downside and here's why it's a watch list one rather than a buying one. Uh, this is kind of expensive, I think, at the moment. Um, it's growing at a pretty good clip. Uh, It's been growing at 10% over the last 10 years or so, but it's got a, uh, well, I guess it's got, I think, I want to say a problem uh, with how much free cash it it throws off. But in fairness, it's not the company's problem. I think the problem is the stock, not the business. So it's got an eight and a bit billion market cap, eight and not very much, 432 million in debt, 157 million in cash. And the free cash flow yield on that gets you to just under 3%. Um, companies growing well has shown a good capacity to grow well keeps growing well eventually and I, I think there's a good runway still for growth there right at that size I think you can acquire plenty more things and keep moving yourself forward the trouble is they really need to uh, at these kind of levels from what I can see of it. and maybe they can but when I'm looking for the, the kind of margin of safety thing it feels like it's not quite there for me at these prices I'm, I'm looking for it around the I think Somewhere under 20 quid, Mark. I think it's probably about 23 or 21 or something like that at the moment. So just looking for a little bit more before I get into this. And by the time we get to Sunday, it might be at that level already, right? I mean, if the US bank earnings decide to destroy the market, we're recording this part of the show uh, on a Wednesday. You might have to edit that bit out. Never mind. Um, uh, Yeah, if the market goes down significantly between now and Sunday, it might be there. But... um, it does look to me a bit like this is kind of on the expensive side for what I'd like to buy at the moment, but ah, it's a good company. I feel like I missed my moment a little bit on this by not being fast enough with the research. The announcement there's a change in CEO coming pushed the stock down because it often does. Um, and I think probably then it hit a level I would have been interested in it at, but right now, uh, a bit too high moment might have passed me there. What you need is the wrong CEO to come in. Um, <laughs> we saw that at uh, uh, another company we really like, which I suppose we can make big comparisons, this one in Diploma. Um, Diploma is tr- is another sort of mini conglomerate. It trades just as rich. Um, but uh, when they changed their CEO, it was a, a long-standing CEO. I think he retired, did he not, Steve, off the top of my head? Oh, that's a good question. Diploma? I'm not sure about that one. Yeah, I think he did. Uh, but the person they brought in, uh, who initially looked like a brilliant fit, uh, just ended up not fitting. Um, Diploma has a... Um, Diploma has a very good way of making all of its um, subsidiaries talk to each other, and uh, uh, and uh, but whilst leaving them to manage themselves, which essentially is what I think you were saying about Halma. Um, so this guy was trying to be a little bit too hands-on, and he ended up getting uh, the, the the directors removed him pretty quickly. I think it was within a quarter or or two, he was removed, and um, the stock went down from that as well. So maybe Halma, with a little bit of a dodgy CEO coming in. Find someone better, get rid of him quickly. That might be your opportunity there, Steve. It might be. I can't remember whether the diploma guy was an outsider coming in or not. Uh, one of the mm. things that... I mean, we're going to talk about diploma in the future, probably, when we have a bit more time and a bit more space to do it, because both Steve and I have heard about this company and we've been thinking about it quite a bit. And I'm pretty sure it's on both our watch lists, if I'm right about yours, Steve. Yep. You are, yeah. Um, so it's it's a company we have a lot of time for, and you're not wrong in thinking that I think of Halmer is very similar. Uh, there are differences in that Halmer's a manufacturer and diploma's a distributor. But, um, yeah, the, the wrong CEO... <sighs> Interesting idea, that, isn't it? The wrong CEO might be no bad thing. 
I feel like mm. I, I, with a decentralized organization like that, I wonder whether I sort of wonder what the CEO does. And I sort of don't really mind if the answer is nothing, uh, to be honest. If it's just a case of sourcing acquisition targets or something like that, um, then mm. then maybe. But uh, yeah, that would be nice. Something to just bring that price down a bit more for me. And I won't miss it this time, I promise. I'll sell something if I have to <laughs> to go and buy it. Are they doing any buybacks, Steve? That was the, thing, the other thing I looked at. No, so they don't check the standard value investing screener pillar thingamy um, on that. They uh, Their share count has been very, very flat and just slightly snuck up over the last uh, hmm. couple of years or so. So, no. Uh, share count's not going down from what I can see of it. Well, that, that's a good thing as well, though. So I suppose um, <clears throat> at least they're using their cash... Uh, to, to acquire things, I suppose, not uh, rather than not doing an awful lot of stock deals or or, uh, or wasting it on buybacks and, and dividends while they still want to grow. So th- I guess that's a positive. Yeah, this is true. I was thinking about um, cash deals versus stock deals a little bit lately, actually. And when I look at sort of share dilution, and we've always said there's sort of, there's the good and the bad of share dilution, right? If diluting your stock down makes it more profitable per share, do it. Uh, if it doesn't do it, then don't do it. Um, and basically it comes down to that in a certain way. And when I think about companies that I'm looking at and I am watching rather than owning for the moment, and I think, okay, you have to, I don't know, pay a bill or make an acquisition or something. Do I want you to do it through cash or through stock? I'm sort of torn if I don't own them. I kind of think, well, with with debt, supposing they do it through debt, sorry, rather than uh, like cash on the in the books already. I kind of think, well, look, if you do it with debt, that's going to be my issue going forward. Uh, basically, we're going to have to pay that debt off sometime in the future, and it's going to be while I'm a shareholder. If you do it with stock, um, I don't mind buying the thing after you've diluted it down because the effects of the dilution is kind of done, um, assuming you don't go and dilute me further uh, on this story. So the, the issue with dilution, I guess, is they might do it again. The issue with debt is it's going to be there when I'm a shareholder and I have to work out how to pay mm. it back, basically. I just uh, had a quick uh, look at the analysts' um, recommendations oh, as well. They're they're pretty they're pretty split. Um, so there's four in strong buy, three in buy, so seven in the buy category. In the hold and the underperform, there is also seven. So uh, although they have an average price, uh, if you you know if you divvy it up with the fourteen price targets of twenty five quid, well over twenty five quid. So uh, yeah, they're. They're neither bullish nor bearish on it, but they think that there's another sort of twenty percent in the price to come. Yeah, that's actually pretty good for a FTSE 100 thing, right? FTSE 100 mm. doesn't do twenty quid in a decade. Twenty uh, percent, sorry, in a decade usually. Twenty-five quid was is a little higher than I'd be looking for here, but I'm interested in that as a it's roughly where the stock. Yeah, as you said twenty percent short of that right at the moment. Hmm. Yeah, somebody thinks thirty-three quid just for the record. Um. So that person thinks interest rates are going back down, and I heard the Bank of England today saying, we will do whatever it takes to fight inflation. Uh, so I don't see yeah. that coming up. And these price targets are one-year price targets, right? Or that's what they're supposed to be? Uh, this, these are these are actually taken up to 2024, oh. so uh, there may be a couple of years. No idea what's happening then. But anyway, uh, that's my one. What have you got, Steve, as a stock? Uh, mine is... Um... Same as yours, really. It's not something that I'm in a rush to buy, but it's a very uh, interesting kind of stock. So uh, mine is um, Ubiquity. Um, Its ticker is UI. Uh, It trades on the NASDAQ, I believe. And the thing that's really sort of drawn me to this one is that its float, the actual shares that are available for us retail investors to purchase, is absolutely tiny. Uh, and that's not because it's got massive amounts of institutional owners that have been hanging on for a long time. It's because the CEO owns the best part of, uh, well, over 90% of the shares. So the CEO is called uh, Robert Perra. He's uh, a former engineer at Apple. Uh, he left in 2005 to form Ubiquity. Um, so he never took on any debt. Uh, he never took on any VC. So his ownership has always remained really, really high. Uh, so I was reading through the history, and they've actually only ever managed to lose money once, and it wasn't even in 2005. It was in 2010. So uh, just a random year to lose money on. So anyway, what does it do? Um, Ubiquity makes high-end networking equipment. Um, so this is for service providers and for enterprises. You've probably seen it if you've been on Amazon looking for routers and things like that, because uh, they do have a, a small consumer arm. 
Um, so they manufacture in low-cost countries. They use Vietnam, China, Taiwan uh, to do all their assembly. Um, the products are primarily used in places that need really, really widespread, high-quality coverage. So think of it like your university campus or your hotels or, or even our local provider. It's basically networked our whole city. So uh, um, we can we can use our... It's really strange. We can use our home Wi-Fi while walking around in the town, um, but it's still not a good enough reason to ever go to the town. Um, so, yeah, services side is um, cell tower networking technology, um, standard stuff that you're putting on the big the big pylons. Um, so this part of the business is uh, it's not a particularly interesting business. It's growing at sort of mid-single digits, mid to low single digits uh, most years. The enterprise side, though, um, that's going quite a bit faster. Uh, but the problem is over the last couple of years, it's been hit by the pandemic in two ways. So... Um, one uh, lower demand because anywhere that we were we were seeking to congregate was was shut because of the pandemic, and two, yep, you guessed it, this one has been a victim of the chip shortage. Um, so looking through the revenue, it's pretty diversified globally. It's got about forty percent of sales in North America, forty percent in the EU, ten percent in Asia Pacific, and ten percent in um, South America. So pretty well, pretty well, pretty well split. So the hook. Um, Ubiquity really, really like buybacks, and they buy back quite a bit when the stock is cheap. Uh, year to date, they're down 16% um, at the moment, and they're they're buying back their stock at a pretty crazy speed. Now, normally, uh, the sort of buybacks that they're doing uh, wouldn't move the needle, but the vast majority of the stock is locked up by the owner, and he isn't selling. Um, so, look, they've got $500 million in debt now, um, which is about a year's free cash flow. And just looking at the floor, there's only about 7% left for them to buy back. And they've just announced a new $300 million buyback plan. So with a market cap of about $15 billion, that's another 2% coming off the floor. So so my question really is, when does Robert Perry choose to take this private? Um, and potentially he could do this at a decent premium because he's not been taking a salary from the business. He's not been... Um, giving himself any extra stock uh, as part of his uh, compensation package. Uh, he's just been taking um, the dividend, uh, which for Paul is 1%. Uh, I think it's a really interesting stock. You don't see a lot of stocks like this anymore, Steve. Is, is there something here that you would you like? It's or? a really interesting exercise, isn't it? That, that buyback story hmm. is fascinating. Um, so it's buying back about 2% of its float on about sort of... Uh, with about 7% outstanding, you're saying. So that kind of leaves you about 5%. You would expect that to kind of creep up a little bit, I guess, because buybacks sort of push the price in the market cap. Well, sorry, they push the price of the individual shares higher, even if the market cap stays the same. I guess hmm. at some point it might get kind of prohibitively expensive. I was trying to work out when that is. So if you're really determined you take this company private as is, and I was looking at its balance sheet, and it looks like it's in decent shape. It's on a price-earnings mm -hmm. ratio about similar to Helmer that I was looking at, which is sort of 30, maybe a touch higher than 30. And I thought that made Helmer expensive, and I thought Helmer's growth was okay. Is it cheap here for buying things back? It's only cheap in the sort of like the grand scheme of things when you look at it. Because there's so little float. Uh, available for a stock to lose 16%, that, that means that its retail base is unanimously been selling the business uh, essentially there. So I think Perra, I mean, I think Perra is willing to buy this at any old price, but uh, it's definitely down from its highs. I mean, its highs, it touched nearly 400. It's now down at 248. So I would uh, I would say that he finds this pretty cheap. Just to say, this has been an absolutely incredible market beater over its time. If you picked it at IPO, it's done over 13,000%. Uh, so it's been a 13 bagger um, and really with minimal drawdown, really, if you're looking down that chart, you see the odd little spike coming down, but it's just been a nice steady, steady up curve to, you know, probably in the next two or three years when Robert Perra decides he's had enough of us and, and takes it private or, or buys the remaining float. Um, yeah, I mean, he's a he's an incredibly rich man looking at the 90% of 15 billion market cap. He's, he's done yeah, he's getting well. a nice dividend off that too. I mean, that's basically what Paul dreams of being, I suppose, owning... I don't care, owning one business and collecting a massive dividend from it and basically that being your kind of income sorted for, for pretty much ever. I'm looking at this chart, by the way, and it reminds me a lot of the Helmer chart from what I can see of it. It did very, very well 
in a bull market, and that's not to say it just did well because it was in a bull market. I'm pretty sure it would have outpaced that bull market fairly comfortably. And it's come back a bit since sort of last February uh, when people started talking about rising interest rates and maybe thinking some of the steam was coming out of this enthusiastic SPAC movement and so on and so forth. So I guess now is the time for buying back stock if you were going to buy back stock. I mean, is this buyback stuff pretty sort of consistent? Does he kind of dollar cost average into his own stock, I guess? Or does he look for his moments? It's, it's, well, it's really difficult to say because you never exactly mm. know exactly what they've bought. But generally, it tends to be whatever they make, they service their debt, they set, they run the company, and whatever's left gets gets buying back stock and and pays out a dividend. So, uh, yeah, just a just an interesting stock. I don't think I've seen anything like it not for a long time. No, anyway. so you think there's no place in your portfolio for this? I think there's not a place for this in mine either, and I'll tell you why in a moment. But you don't think there's one for you? It depends, really, because it's difficult to know the motivation, isn't it? I think with a stock, you really want to have a clear understanding of the motivations, with, with so, especially when the founder owns, owns so much of this company. You, I mean, he's still young. He's only in his 40s. Um, so you would assume, does he want to retire? If he wants to retire, he could he could get rid of this company uh, to private equity overnight. And I guess he wouldn't mind if he sells it for 15 billion and one pence, owning 90% of it. Um, so yeah, the, the reason I think the reason that attracts me to the company is that the high ownership, but the reason I probably wouldn't buy it is also the high ownership, because unless you could have a sit down and chat with this guy and say, I think because the vast majority of the business is him, you know, it's his, it's his idea. It's his baby. He's the founder. He's the one who took it from nothing to something. He's the one that's growing it at this rapid pace. And you just think, I just need to know what your motivations are. And if, if you could have a chat with him, I think, you know, you'd, you'd probably go out and buy it. But in the meantime, you've just got to sort of scratch your head and uh, say, what a fascinating story. Stick it on the watch list and just be interested to see what yeah, happens with it. I, I'm not even sure it's making it to my watch list for what it's worth, but I get your thought here. It's definitely a story that I'm interested in following uh, in a certain way. The reason I'm not buying it, I think, is the same, although I'd probably word it slightly different. The reason I would own this stock if I owned this stock would be in, like, the purest sense speculation of i think i can sell this to some other dude at a higher price specifically the dude who owns all the rest of it uh because i think he will buy it back mm. off me at whatever the hell the price is i'd be kind of hoping the price goes up because then i'd be pretty sure someone will take it out of my hands at a buyback thing um and it may well do that because the buyback will push the stock as it goes if you buy back two percent of the float and the sorry two percent of the shares and there's only seven percent of the shares outstanding that has to move the stock price up. It's going to destroy the book value. But I looked at this company and it has a really weird book value anyway. Uh, that's not hmm. a good way to value this. Because when I was trying to figure out whether or not this is a good price to be buying back stock, I tried to look for a price to book and I couldn't find one because it actually strictly looks like it's probably negative equity at the moment. That's not the be all and end all uh, of a company like this by any means. Book value is a wildly misleading thing in some cases. I'm prepared to believe it is in this case. I can fully well think that's true. But, yeah, in my case, I would only be owning this because I thought I could flock it to someone else. And whilst I didn't get involved in this story as a, a participant, although I, again, watched it excitedly from the sidelines, I saw the Twitter thing with Elon Musk and I didn't pile into those shares on the idea that I would sell them to him more expensive. Um, and that's... I, I'm feeling quite pleased to myself for not having done that. So I'm, I'm generally minded to stay out of things where that's pretty much my only reason for owning the stock of... I think this price will go up and I think this dude will buy it off me and it does. I think the other thing to, the other reason I, I'm quite interested in watching the story as well is that what happens when he gets to the kind of levels where the, the people in the floor don't want to sell to him anymore. Maybe there's five or four or 3% of people who want to hold on to ubiquity. Does he start rapidly increasing that dividend to get rid of the free cash? Could you end up with, you know, a company that generates 600 million of free cash and basically wants to distribute it all the way through you know him and the and the float. Um, that that dividend um, percentage could could in, could increase pretty rapidly. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, but I thought it was a dumb question, and I thought the reason it might be was because I suppose he could just choose to take it private at some point. I mean, the people who hmm. don't want to sell their Twitter shares to Elon Musk or their Activision shares to Microsoft, if they're the likes of you and me, and I don't own either of those companies, and don't think I ever have owned either one. Thought about Activision Blizzard once a long time ago. Um, I kind of think, well, isn't it just sort of too bad if they decide they don't want to sell their shares? They kind of have to. Well, he is. 
at, but he, but he can take mm. the company private right now if he wants to because he owns that much of it. He's almost entitled yeah. to do so, isn't he? Um, and he hasn't chosen to. No, do he yet. appears to um, want to not pay a kind of market premium and just sort of take it out bit by bit at whatever the market rate is. Maybe when he thinks the market rate is attractive, rather than saying here's a twenty thirty percent premium, yeah. I'm having them uh, basically. But maybe it gets to the stage where he has to do that mm. in the end. The 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 opposite of that is also true, I guess. So is that he's, he might be thinking. I don't need to work anymore. I'm 40, 46. I could sell this and pocket 12 billion and, uh, well, and a bit Stick more. Stick it all into AT&T and, and get know, a massive dividend. Do, can do whatever he wants. Yeah, if that's AT&T is what he wants to do, then be my guest. But, I mean, it's just another one of those fantastic American uh, entrepreneur stories, isn't it? A hidden company that's 15 billion that, you know, you've got potential, oh, an incredibly rich guy there, really. I'm surprised uh not stumbled across his no. name before. How did you stumble across his name? I stumbled across it in a Twitter thread uh, because um, when the um, when the share price dropped, it dropped about four or five percent in a day. Uh, they announced their new buyback plan like immediately off the back of it, which made me just think, "Whoa, this is like this is what you want to see, isn't it?" When the, when the share price is going down, companies buying back stock, regardless of whether you think that's necessarily the right thing, whether it's at the right cheapness it's definitely better buying back the stock at this price 250 than it is at 400 so um yeah that, that was how i spotted it and i just you know you, you catch a thread and you, you you run after it and you chase it down and you think this is just a this is just an absolutely bomb yeah story. i forget how much of your research comes from twitter by the way and i mean that in the best way uh, for what it's worth i kind of find your stuff always interesting every week and sort of wonder where a lot of it comes from. Some of it I know because we listen to some of the same podcasts, like the Diploma stuff, uh, like anything mm. on Motley Fool and so on. Uh, but yeah, I keep forgetting how much you look at stuff like Twitter and how much your Twitter doesn't look like mine, probably. It's uh, it's it's my old ear-to-the-ground mm. kind of thing. I like, I like to read and consume as much as I absolutely can, and not because I actually... Uh, sorry to say this to anybody who is a, a listener, but... Uh, to, to I, I'm not particularly bothered what you think about the stock, but I am interested about the stocks themselves. Do you know what I mean? So I'll formulate mm. my own opinion on it. And, you know, I, I quite like listening to stock reviews and reading stock threads, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to swear me. Um, but I do like to, I, I do like it when I see a ticker and I don't know it uh, or don't have a rough idea of what it does. So I think we've done two of them today because <laughs> I didn't have a clue what Halmer was before. So uh, and ubiquity. Um, well, yeah, it was just yeah, interesting you I hadn't heard about. I, I was quite enjoying looking at the other stock you sent me, actually, which we will come to another time, I guess. Um, so, mm. yeah, two interesting stocks for July, then. Definitely, yeah. And I guess at that point, we kind of chuck things back to Paul on the rest of the show and let him round it up. Cool. Yeah, sounds good. And I'm back. Uh, sorry, I missed it there. I wasn't part of that recording, but I'm sure it was very good. And I, it, both of those stocks, I definitely want to buy because I'm 100% going to listen to this podcast afterwards. Uh, thank you very much, guys, for listening this week. And we will see you again next week.